Exodus 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants. Of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Good morning and welcome. If you're a visitor here this morning, we're studying through this great book, the book of Exodus. And Israel, at this point, has been delivered from 400 years of Egyptian bondage. We've seen the Israelites uh, having now been led out of Egypt after witnessing ten miraculous sign judgments upon Pharaoh and his empire. After making a mockery, an absolute mockery, of their pantheon of gods, Israel exits Egypt. And then the Lord leads them in a very unconventional way. And that was for the purpose of hardening Pharaoh even further in order to draw Pharaoh into God's trap. Chapter 14, verse 4, we read, 
God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh empties his munitions store of horsemen, soldiers, a a cavalry of chariots, thinking that Israel will be shut in by the wilderness, pressed up against the Red Sea, and then he pursues with force. God restrains and God delays their pursuit as he sets between them, Pharaoh and his troops, and Israel, his pillar of cloud. The Lord then blows back the sea. Moses leads them through dry ground, where the water serves as walls of protection on the right hand and on their left. Pharaoh and his armies pursue. He go, they go in after them, and the same walls of water that are used as protection for the Israelites come crashing down as walls of judgment upon Pharaoh and his armies. It says the waters return to their normal course, crashing down, And not one of them, the scripture says, remained. And then, in chapter 14, verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. And they believed in God's servant, Moses. Looking then at these dead bodies scattered up and down the shore, notice Moses did not say, eyes forward, guys. Nothing to see here. Keep moving on. We have a long way to go. No. All they could do was stop, look, and see all that the Lord did, and in response, praise God. Israel is singing what Mark just read is a song. Israel is singing and praising who and what they value. They're praising the one they're thankful to, and they're singing why they're thankful. Amen? That's where we're at. All human beings... Every single human being naturally praises what they value and what they appreciate. Everybody. You cannot help but to praise what you take pleasure in. It's inevitable. Good, bad, or indifferent. There is a direct link between what one values and what one treasures and praise. Praise is a natural expression for all of humanity and whatever it is that's being delighted in. When you delight in something, be it a sports team, a relationship, you know, artistic expressions, a painting, a sculpture, uh, a song, a musical score, a clothing design, whatever it is, we naturally express what it is we delight in. We prize what we esteem. 
We applaud what we admire, we praise what we adore, we celebrate what we appreciate, we pay tribute to what we treasure. Always. There's an unavoidable connection between what is valued and what is praised. And for the Christian, expressions for God are expressions of how much we delight in God. Wherever, wherever there's lethargic or absent praise God, of God, it will inevitably be traced back to a diminished delight in God. Now, these people, you know, or those people may be us. We may blame the church, that is, the people in the church. We may blame the pastor. Israel will eventually blame Moses. And then you go wandering from church to church for years with the same excuse. If there's diminished delight in God, true pleasure in praise of God will be absent or at best lackadaisical. And then the danger and the temptation in trying to remedy half-hearted worship and praise is to substitute an apathetic heart with gimmicks. With mind and emotion manipulation. It could be, you know, phony signs. You know, an attempt to whip oneself up into some kind of spiritual frenzy. Perhaps, you know, with, with bogus, you know, tongues gibberish. Slain in the spirit services, the nonsense you see on TV, or numerous other unbiblical practices. It could be an, a fondness for doctrine minus the Lord of the doctrine. Or at the least, an attempt to appear fervent and then just speak with unrelenting Christian ease. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise God, pray, when you're not really praising Him. The remedy for lethargy is never running to silly stunts or counterfeit signs or the facade of doctrinal knowledge. That's not the remedy. Instead, we must run to the source Himself, amen? And cry out as William Cooper did when he wrote this, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. Go to him. Don't go to stunts. Not that anyone here is given to gimmicks. But let's go to the source, amen? God's redeemed people throughout Scripture are called to praise their Redeemer. The God who saves deserves and demands to be praised. One of the ways in which God's redeemed people are called, are instructed to do so both in the Old Testament and the New is to sing praises to Him. That's why it's always refreshing to listen to you sing every Lord's Day. We are instructed to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You find that in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Colossians. 
Now, sometimes you may enter into worship with a heavy heart. Amen? And you don't want to sing. You're carrying heavy burdens. You have an illness. Perhaps you filled, you're filled with doubts or insecurities or anxieties over loved ones. This is life, amen? This is life. And it causes you to say within yourself, why should I sing? I don't feel like singing. Why should I praise God every given day when I'm going through all this? Why should I? Well, our text this morning provides three reasons as to why we should sing, three reasons as to why we must sing, three reasons to why, why it is we ought to always give praise to God. Number one in your outline is that the supremacy of God demands it, the saving power of God deserves it, and God's faithful promises drive it. Are you with me this morning, beloved? That's the structure of the hymn. That's not some brilliant thinking, you know, and formulation in my, in my mind. That's just the outline of the hymn. It consists of three parts. Containing in the first stanza, or the first part of this hymn, this, by the way, is the first hymn in the Bible. The first hymn, right here, chapter 15 of Exodus in the Bible. The, the, the first part, or first stanza, we see in verses 1 through 6, we see the supremacy of our Redeemer demands praise. The second part, verses 7 through 12, we see the glory of His saving power, which deserves praise. And then the third stanza, the third part, verses 13 to 18, we see the future promises of God that drives praise. And then we see the refrain or the chorus of the hymn in verses 19 to 21. But first, there's an occasion. What's the occasion for the hymn? Quite simply, it's the great sea deliverance of Almighty God for his people. Amen? We looked at that last week. Chapter 14, verses 27 to 30. And if you notice in verse 31, chapter 14, Israel saw the great power of God that the Lord used against the Egyptians. They saw, they feared, they believed, they're filled with awe, they're filled with faith. Why? Because of a great deliverance. Because of a great triumph, a total freedom. This is a full salvation. A full salvation is in view right here. So they stop and they praise God. The salvation of the Lord demands worship. God alone has done this, so they sing. Amen? God acts, we believe, wherein faith we declare the supremacy of the one who's acted on our behalf. He is the supreme one. And we declare that when we praise. We declare that when we sing. We declare that when we gather. That's how it works. The focus of this song is on the saving work of God. Amen? He is the supreme one. Verse 1, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, then the, I'm sorry, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord's his name. 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. If you jump down to verse 21, and Miriam sang to them. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So verse 21 is the chorus. It repeats the first verse of the song of Moses. It's probably likely that Moses is leading the men of Israel in this hymn, and then the women join together, and they grab tambourines. That doesn't justify bringing a tambourine to church. And then they (laughs) sing the chorus. I knew a woman that did that in a particular church in the front row. It was irritating. Don't do that. I think this was her proof text for bringing a tambourine to church. So these are not two separate songs, but, but this is a chorus being sung. This is antiphonal praise being given to God. It's a song of response. And the chorus provides repetition. We saw something of repetition this morning, amen? In repetition enhances the beauty, the poetry, and the memorization of the hymn. It helps you to remember. They didn't have hymnals then. They had to remember. Now, in the Psalms, as you read through the Psalms, you you might notice as you read through that little word, Selah, uh, off to the side. There is a theory that says it may very well serve as a marker to repeat the first verse of the psalm. At the very least, it serves as a summary of what the song is about. So notice verse 1, then they sang. Then. Okay, on the opposite side of the seashore, they sing this song, then, which is about God, sung for the first time on the other side of the shore, on the other side of the Red Sea, sung many, many, many times thereafter. It never was old, never wrote, never stale, never boring, Certain songs I could sing every week. A mighty fortress is our God, I could sing it every week. It is well with my soul, I could sing it every Lord's Day and never grow tired of those great old hymns. Amen. Many in our day don't like hymns. I was taught to to go teach a group not long ago of some young people, sweet young people, college people. And one of them said, you know, I've been to your church, it was really great, but, you know, I'm not into old hymns. That's all right. Some people in our day, they're into happy, clappy songs. We're not happy, clappy. We're happy, but we don't have to be clappy. Right? Unfortunately, in our day, many churches are into me songs. Songs that make me feel good with absolutely zero theological content. Okay? When we sing, we want to be singing about him and what he's done. Amen? Here's one you might recall. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. No one else will do. You could sing that song about anybody or about anything. Zero theological content in that song. Okay, look. The the point here is not that only old hymns are good hymns, right? 
Not only old hymns are good hymns, or this is an argument that we ought, ought to only do the old for the sake of doing the old, right? And only led by a piano, by the way. Or an organ, better yet. And with a 16th century feel to it. No, that's nonsense, too. The point is, or has to do less with age and musical dimension and more to do with theological content. Amen? So it doesn't matter whatever style we use. It's about the content of what we sing. Amen? So the, fork, the focus here in this hymn is on the supremacy of our redeeming God, which requires praise of God. Praises about God, about what he has done. And notice here Moses, who's the chief worshiper, he's leading this thing. He is deflecting any and all attention away from himself, away from Aaron. Focusing on the one who is the true source of Israel's deliverance. Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D in your English translation. Yahweh, used I think a dozen times in the hymn. So the Lord himself is central to this event of praise. That is why we are here this morning. He is the focus. You're not the focus. He's the focus. Amen? Amen. Worship is about God. And that's a message oftentimes lost in our day. You know, people who really don't like biblical exposition, that's what this is. You read the word and you explain the word verse by verse. People who really don't like biblical exposition, uh, which, by the way, this is a form of worship. The preaching, this is a form of worship. We are worshiping the Lord. You take that and you take songs focused on the work and the worth of the Lord. Sometimes people will uh, visit a a worship service like this and they will leave and they will say, I didn't get much out of worship today. Okay, and there lies the problem. Because the worship isn't for you. Is it for you to get anything? We give worship. Now, you ought to be edified by it. You ought to be built up, amen? But it's about him. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, our redeeming Lord, amen? Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my salvation. I will exalt him. He's my redeeming Lord. He's my salvation. He's my savior. Notice verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Imagine what that does to the politically correct sensitivities, emotional sensitivities of our day. Amen? Of 21st century hearers. Jesus is a man of war. He is the conquering king of the universe. And beloved, we do him honor when we sing about him like that. He's a man of war. He is not your pal. He is nobody's homeboy. He's not your boyfriend. He's not a tree-hugging Galilean hippie walking around in dusty sandals throwing the peace sign. He's the man of war, the Lord of glory. He is not a milquetoast savior. He's not in search of someone to feel sorry for him. He is the conquering king. He is the man of war. That's who we worship. The Lord is his name, Yahweh, the self-existing one. 
And as such, he instructs us to sing about his conquering power. He rules. He's not looking for people to feel sorry for him. He came and carried out his purpose, amen? He came to do his Father's will. And he conquered sin, and he conquered death, and he conquered Satan, and he will destroy everyone who stands against him. And yet he calls in sinners to himself, according to his grace. He's dependent upon nothing outside of himself. He does not need you. He does not need me. All focus and all attention is on him and his conquering work and incomparable worth. That's what this is about. And that Yahweh, that's his covenant name. He is the covenant Lord. God's redeemed people are to sing because we have something to sing about. It's called the gospel. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, that's the gospel. Genesis 3.15 on is the gospel. Amen? That's why we sing. We have been redeemed of all our sins. That is something to sing about. Certainly ought to be. Again, I commend you for braving this brutal storm. (laughs) Southern California people who, you heard the raindrops this morning. I heard them. And I said, man, I could lay here all day long. (laughs) God in his grace got me up by faith just to come in here. (laughs) Joking. It, It did sound good, though. And I'll go take a nap in it this afternoon. (laughs) Notice, the Lord is praised for his redemption. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider, he's hurled into the sea. They went down into the depths like a stone. They're rejoicing over God's judgment. To the end of time, God's people will be rejoicing over his judgment. And if you understand his judgment, then you can understand his grace that saves. If you don't understand his judgment, you can't understand his grace that saves. There's no grace without wrath. There's no grace without a cross. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, has shattered the enemy. The reason you go to church is to worship God. And that's what this song is calling our attention to. We are the people of God who gather together to worship the God who's redeemed us. Amen? He is the conquering king. He, Jesus, is the man of war. So we worship him because his supremacy demands worship. Amen? Demands worship. Second part. Verses 7 through 12, we see the glory of his saving power, which deserves praise. This is what God is like. In verse 8, God himself is pictured as the source of the east wind that that blows open the sea. And again, friends, this was not a naturalistic event. God is never dependent upon. He is never subject to the laws of nature. I used the example last week. God was not subject to the sun that he created on day 4 to provide light on day 1, 2, or 3. Amen? He blew back the Red Sea. And then it returned to its natural course. 
He broke in to the laws of nature and reversed them. And at that very moment, when the enemy threatened to utterly destroy God's people, God destroyed them. I do not believe that Pharaoh here was attempting to wrangle Israel back into Egypt. I think the, temp, the, the text tells us he wanted to annihilate them. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. At that moment, the Lord piled up the waters like a heap, delivering his own and annihilating them. That's the Lord we serve. That's the Lord that saves. Verse 10, you blew your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead. You see what they're rejoicing about? The enemy sunk as lead in the mighty waters. Reminding us of the cross, friends. At that moment, when Satan attempted to do his worst, to utterly destroy God's only son, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is then, at that moment, that Satan was utterly destroyed, the serpent's head crushed. Done. Our greatest enemies, death and Satan, did their best to try to defeat God's Messiah, and he crushed them. Beautiful. To save you. But Almighty God raised him from the dead, destroying sin, destroying death, destroying Satan, ascending above, and then descending in the power and presence of his Holy Spirit into his people. So the glory of God's saving power is the theme here of the second stanza. Here we see the character of the supreme one that deserves praise. You know, every, every week we sing about the glory of the saving power of the cross. Amen? God crushed his enemy. He, he crushed his, his arch enemy, Satan. So we, we sing about the doing and the dying of another. Amen? That's what we sing about, the doing and the dying of another, which is much better than singing about my doing. Much better than singing about your doing. We sing about his doing and his dying. In verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. Now, the right hand in, in Scripture often refer, is used as a metaphor to, to depict the, the power of God, particularly his saving power, to rescue his people and to judge his enemies. That's what we see exhibited here. Your right hand, verse 6, shatters the enemy. You know, people often get the wrong ideas about God. They think of his harshness minus his love, or they think about sappy love minus his wrath. Amen? Look, if you want, if you want to truly know what God is like, look at the cross. What is God like? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ, because on the cross... We witness the converging of hatred, of judgment, of anger, of wrath, of judgment, of hell, along with mercy and grace and love and compassion and forgiveness, punishment and deliverance. 
So if you want to see what God is like, look at the cross. Never think of him in, in mere sappy sentiment or as a harsh, scowling judge. He's all these things. God is love, but that's not all he is. Amen? Amen. Verses 10 through 12, they sing basically that, you know, those who oppose God will be opposed by God. And if you're opposed by God, you will be overcome by God. Aren't you glad that he didn't leave you to yourself? You know who conquered your heart to believe in Christ? It wasn't your will. It wasn't your free will. No, God violated the very nature to which you were subject to, and that's called a sin nature. He violated it. He broke into it, and he transformed you so that when he called you to follow, you followed. He changed your want to. He changed your will, which was dead set against him. He did it. Otherwise, you can praise yourself for your salvation. And then when you come here, you can sing to yourself. But you had nothing to do with it, friend. He did it all. In the work he begun, he will continue that work. Amen? Amen. To the end. So we praise him. In verse 11, they are reveling in the majesty of God. Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness? We're told in verse 12, the Egyptians are swallowed up by the earth. But in verse 13, what do we see here? Yes, we see his judgment. We also see in verse 13, the source of salvation. The source of Israel's redemption. And it is the loving kindness of God, i.e., his covenantal love. This is the covenant Lord. All the promises he gave to the forefathers are coming to pass. Amen? And that refers to his loyalty, God's loyalty, his devotion to his people initiated by him, carried out by him, and maintained in the bond of covenant. You're the covenant children of God, amen? New covenant children of Almighty God. So there we see his supremacy demands praise. His saving power deserves praise. And here now in the third stanza, or the third part, verses 13 to 18, we see the promises of the future. What he will yet do. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Verse 13. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. That is, nations around have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in. Okay, don't miss this now. Plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign, get this, forever and ever. Did you get that? So he, he leads his people like a shepherd, redeeming them, you know, like a kinsman redeemer. And then by his strength, he guides his people. He leads them into a dwelling place. First, they'll meet him at Mount Sinai. Eventually, Mount Zion itself, the promised land, that's the goal. And the result of all this, Moses says here in verses 14 to 16, is that the people around them 
fear God. In Joshua 9, you remember the Gibeonites confessed to Joshua and the children of Israel decades after the fact that all the people of the land of Canaan, the scripture says, trembled when they heard what God had done at the Red Sea. Cool, huh? So it's best to see this section, this third stanza, as the Lord giving his people, beloved, a preview of what is yet to come. So through this song, God's prophet, Moses, he's a prophet, is pointing out that other nations will fare no better than Egypt. In due time, this is a prophetic section. Providing for them a bird's eye view, or or a God's eye view, if you will, of their overall journey. Are you with me? Okay, now, then in verse 16, when we read terror and dread falling upon these nations, is not to ignore the fact that at certain times and certain occasions, the opposite seems to be true. Right? It's not to ignore that. The picture here is much broader than that, however. Much broader. The Lord is teaching Israel to look at circumstances from the ultimate frame of reference. That's how we have to look at life. From the ultimate frame of reference. This is a poetic expression of God's overall point of view. That being, beloved, what he declared back in chapter 14, verse 14. Notice this. The Lord will fight for you. Right? This is the Lord's battle. You have only to be silent. The battle is the Lord's. He brought you out. He'll bring you through. Right? So he promises that in spite of God's enemies, he will march them into their final rest and into their final inheritance. That's the promise. They've been through 430 years of slavery. They remember that promise given to Abraham. They remember Joseph, but the other pharaohs forgot about Joseph, so 400 years they're in slavery. God comes, and they witness 10 sign judgments upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt. He delivers them miraculously. They're going to be, need to be re-encouraged over and over again. So before they start to travel, God gives them this prophetic word. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. In view here is where the temple will stand, on God's holy mountain. So the picture is of God leading his people into an undisturbed dwelling and undisturbed rest. Now, followed by this great crescendo in verse 18. Notice. The Lord will reign what? Forever and ever. So, the Lord bringing his people into Canaan, the Lord bringing his people into rest, is really a picture, beloved, of ultimate rest. This is much bigger than just a piece of land. This is pointing forward to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells And where the Lord reigns, what? Forever and ever in glory. And that's repeated throughout redemptive history. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, at the final trumpet blast, notice what we read. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He reigns now. That's a picture of the consummation of the kingdom. So the song of Moses, beloved, 
Follow me on this. Speaking of the future now. Third stanza. The song of Moses serves as a pattern. It serves as a paradigm for the whole of redemption. Are you with me this morning? The whole of redemption. That is, all that God is doing throughout the scriptures ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All right? Now, as we look ahead to the final judgment of God, that is at the final consummation of all things. You think the Red Sea is something big? You think the destruction of these enemies is a big deal? Wait till the end. This foreshadows that. Entering into promised land foreshadows that. A temple that Moses prophetically says will be built on God's holy mountain is a picture of that. At the final judgment, at the final blast of God, the seventh trumpet judgment, where God unleashes final ultimate judgment against the enemy, where death itself is ultimately destroyed, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, all his earth, all his hosts, and the earth purged of sin, we will be singing. And guess what we will be singing? This song. The song of Moses. This old hymn. That's an old, old, old hymn, beloved. You like old hymns? Like this one because you're going to be singing this one. In Revelation, we read of worship in heaven. And the song being sung is this song. The new covenant fulfillment of this great hymn is a gospel hymn ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look at it. Chapter 15, Revelation, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Okay, friends, the song being sung at the end of the age is the same song that we read in chapter 15 of Exodus, the song of Moses, which has always been the song of the Lamb. Has always been the song of the Lamb. The word and, notice, verse 3, Revelation 15, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The word and is an explanatory conjunction, which is to say they were singing, are you with me? They were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, that is the song of the Lamb. See how the Bible all ties together? You see the covenant flow, friends? God's people in this picture stand delivered on the other side of a sea. And what's this sea described as? A sea of glass. A sea of glass in Scripture. The sea serves as a picture of God's judgment. In Scripture, the sea serves as a picture of turmoil. Noah and the flood, judgment. Red Sea crossing, judgment. Earlier in the chapters of Revelation, we see the beast rise up out of the sea. That's turbulence. That's turmoil. That's what's represented. The picture here is not troubled waters. The picture here is still water like glass. Notice, mingled with what? Fire. 
a sea of glass mingled with fire. Everybody knows, the children here know, you can't mix fire with water. Amen? But in the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. Therefore, the mixing of fire with water is perfectly acceptable. So what do you have? In Revelation, fire is used over 20 times as a metaphor for divine judgment. Water's clear. Fire's red. What do we have here? A red sea of glass. You get it? A red sea of glass. So by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John skillfully... John's the author of Revelation. He skillfully ties in with the Red Sea of the first exodus, providing this picture of the ultimate exodus. Standing on the other side, here are true believers, those who are conquerors in the conqueror. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who's a man of war. He's the conquering king. We're in him, and because we're in him, we'll stand on the other side of this sea. Still, calm, smooth as glass, a sea of glass, red, mingled with fire. So they stand on the side of deliverance, just like the Israelites of Exodus 15, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And notice what they're crying out. Notice, listen. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You know what that is emphasizing? The same thing we see emphasized in chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 11. Who's like you, O Lord? Get that? Who's like you, O Lord? Who's who's like you, O Lord, then? And who's like you, O Lord, now? And who's like you forevermore? For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who's like you, O Lord, among the gods? Small g, there's no other gods in this universe. There are none. They're man-made. Did we not see that? God crushed them all. He made mockery of them. The ten plagues? Who's like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. So it's a hymn of triumph. It's a hymn of salvation. Here on the heavenly shore of a glass sea. And what do we see here? At the end, at the ultimate end, there is one redeemed people singing one song of redemption to one glorious supreme Savior. This is a one glorified people of God. One. In the end. And Exodus foreshadows this. Amen? 3,500 years ago, the Exodus was ordained to prefigure this ultimate Exodus. And both, both involved the same elements of deliverance. Blood and omnipotence. The all-powerfulness of God and blood. Grace and wrath. That's the cross. See that table? That represents grace and wrath. Communion table, beloved. Grace and wrath. 
when God saves, when God saves his people, you know what they do? They sing. They praise the Lord. And notice as God is being praised, the focus is God who lives forever and ever. So wherever your heart may be this morning, Christian, allow this text, allow this text to serve as an introspective tool. Don't be afraid of conviction. If your praise of God is absent, if your praise of God and for God is apathetic, allow this hymn to be a diagnostic, diagnostic means for your soul. Do not be afraid of conviction. Amen? Because it's a means of God's grace. Sometimes Christians will sit under preaching of his word. Sometimes Christians will study a resource. Perhaps it's on the holiness of God or something, or on worship, whatever. And they become overly critical of the book, or they become overly critical of the message because they have become somewhat lethargic. They're being convicted, and rather than seeing conviction as a means of God's grace to cut a path in the other direction, they use it as a sword to attack the resource or the sermon or the people who are holding them accountable. Don't do that. Amen? See it is God's grace. So we can stop, like Israel, look and see the mighty works of God and remember that he sent his son, the incarnate son of God, so as to crucify him on a Roman cross. The one who never sinned, becoming sin, so that we might be referred to as what? The righteousness of God in him. That's what the table represents, amen? It's the gospel made visible, and that's where we move now to continue our worship this morning.